Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my pleasure to share God's Word with you this morning. If you have children uh, fifth grade and under, you may choose to let them go to Gospel Project now. There's some people waiting out on the back who would take them to the class, or you may choose to let them stay in here. That's fine, too. As another reminder, parents, mothers particularly, we have a mother's lounge for you, if you uh, for your convenience. We're not saying we want you to go there if you have a baby. We love having babies in the room. And uh, it is solely for your convenience if you choose. Uh, and the service is showing in there if you choose to do that. This morning, we will continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark by focusing on Mark 12, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Mark 12, 38 through 44. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some blue ones in the seat back in front of you that you can use. If you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take that blue one home and keep it. Last week, we looked at verses 35 through 37 of chapter 12, which described for us Jesus challenging the teaching of the scribes. Jesus showed that their teaching was incomplete and misleading. They didn't really understand the scriptures like they thought they did. They didn't get it. Here, in our passage today, Jesus challenges the scribes' practices and especially their motives. The main point of this passage, though, is not how terrible the scribes are. Jesus calls them out here to show a contrast between them and their motives and one poor widow and her motives. So it's in the contrast of these two extremes that we find the heart of what the Lord is teaching us this morning. So here we have Jesus teaching at the temple, and he makes two statements, two judgments. One is a, a warning about scribes, and the other, in contrast, is a commendation of this widow. <clears throat> Let's read the first of these two statements we find in verses 38 through, 40, uh, 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses for a pre and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. The setting here is the same as it's been the whole chapter of Mark. Jesus is at the temple teaching. The presence of the scribes and the disciples and a great crowd of people. This teaching in 38 through 40 is the last public teaching that Mark records for us in his gospel. It's the last thing he says to the crowd. And what is this teaching? It's a warning. Watch out for those guys. Be on guard when you're around scribes. It's easy for us today to hear this and say, well, this doesn't have much to do with me. I don't see any scribes in the room. So what does this have to do with me? I think, it, I hope, it might be helpful for us morning, this morning to understand how the people that Jesus was speaking to that day would have thought about scribes, how they would have viewed scribes. And then for us to think about 
what exactly it is that Jesus is saying is so dangerous about them. So who are the scribes? The scribes are biblical scholars of their day. These are the seminary graduates, the professors, the experts in the Bible and the law, rabbis. These were men mostly from the lower and middle classes of Jewish society who had worked their way up, who had earned their position. Scribes were not technically paid for their teaching, so they had other jobs. For example, Gamaliel, the rabbi that Paul studied under, was a day laborer, and Paul himself was a tent maker. Unlike priests and Levites, priests and Levites, who were born into their position, a man had to study for years under an accomplished rabbi to become a scribe. Only after years of dedication to the study of the Bible and the teachings of the elders could one be ordained as an elder, as a scribe, I'm sorry. At that point, then, they would be considered a teacher of the law, a rabbi. Because becoming a scribe meant making something of yourself, becoming somebody important, many ambitious men were drawn to this way of life. But scribes were genuinely admired and respected by almost everyone. For most people, the scribes in the first century held a position similar to that of the prophets had held in previous generations. They were viewed with reverent awe. Because of their knowledge, their obvious devotion to Scripture, their proven skill at interpretation and teaching, their words were valued far more than that of the priests and more than Scripture by itself. And the scribes' devotion to God was simply unquestionable. And yet, here, Shockingly, to most who were there, Jesus challenged that very thing. Here he doesn't, uh, what is it that he actually warns us about, about the scribes? He doesn't mention their faulty theology here, or question their training in scriptures, or even their knowledge of scripture. Although he could have pointed to flaws in all those areas, Jesus instead here focuses our attention on what they love, what they were actually devoted to. Jesus here points out six things that they're doing, six practices that reveal their hearts, their true motives. Jesus says the scribes like these things. They crave these things. They desire these things. They're motivated by these things. The first is, they liked wearing long robes. Only the scribes were allowed to wear these robes. Think about uh, college professors and the cap and gowns that they wear that you have to earn, that, that show the accomplishments that you've achieved. Scribes' robes were similar to that. Only scribes could wear them. So their dress marks them out as important and accomplished. They liked greetings of honor in the marketplace. If you were in the Jerusalem marketplace in this time, as busy and crowded as it was, 
when a scribe walked by, people would stop what they were doing gladly, stand up, and show respect to the scribes, bow to them, call them rabbi or master or father. Scribes loved that. They liked having the best seats in the synagogue. Synagogues of the day had a raised platform so that the person who was reading the scripture could be seen by everyone. And on that platform were seats in the back facing the congregation. Those seats, imagine them back here, were reserved for scribes only to honor them. They liked having a place of honor at feasts. In the first century, if you were throwing a dinner party, it would be considered quite a coup for you if you could get a scribe to come, like having a celebrity in your house. They also liked financial gain. Scribes were forbidden to charge money for their teaching, but it was very common and encouraged for people to make donations to their ministries to help relieve them of the burden of supporting themselves so they could dedicate themselves to studying and teaching Scripture and the law. Jesus says that this situation led to abuse. He says that the scribes devoured widows' houses. What does he mean by that? Well, we know that God's word is literally filled with expressions of God's special care and concern for widows and orphans. These were the most vulnerable, the most powerless, the most easily exploited people in every culture of the time. We're not told exactly how, but the scribes somehow were using their influence, their positions of trust, to take advantage for profit of those who needed their protection the most. And finally, he says they like making long prayers, long, lofty public prayers. Not that there's anything wrong with praying in public. I just did that. But if you're trying to earn the praise of men, is there anything else that shows just how pious you are, quite like a delivering an eloquent public prayer. Jesus says these spectacular prayers were a pretense. They were make-believe. They were just pretend devotion to God to disguise their real nature. Now, was Jesus saying here that it was wrong for the people to honor and, and respect and support those that they believed were Trustworthy, godly, knowledgeable teachers of the law. No, he's not saying that. He doesn't say that at all. The problem, Jesus says, is that these scribes loved these things and they did not love God. Their motivations are all self-serving, not God-glorifying. How shocking this warning must have been to the people standing there that day and to the to the disciples as well. How could it be that the scribes' devotion to God, which seemed so real, so obvious, was so fake? Well, it turns out that there's a flaw common to every human being born since Adam in this fallen world that easily explains how this happened to these men. 
Every one of us shares this same fatal flaw. Everyone but Jesus, that is. You know what it is? We are all strongly predisposed to love the praise of people more than we love the glory of God. I'm going to say that again. We all are strongly predisposed to love the praise of people more than we love the glory of God. Of course, it's good to want to please others. It's good to be want, to want to be loved by others. God gave us these desires so that we would value living in community with one another. But as always, our sinful hearts take God's good gifts and we turn them into sinful passions. The desire for love, community, the good of others morphs into a craving for the praise and acceptance of people and into a fear of not having it. Let me give you an example. When I was a little kid, I figured out really early that I could draw and that a lot of other people couldn't. I discovered that when I drew something, created some art, even not very good art, I received praise from other people. I love that. That's great. So it made me want to do it more, made me want to get into art more. And I could always get people's attention by doing that. I eventually became a graphic designer. Now, I'm not saying, uh, uh, I'm saying, let me start over. It is a good thing to use the gifts and talents you're giving. I'm not saying it's not. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing that I'm a graphic designer or that Desiree is. But looking back, I can see clearly that part of my motivation, at least, was to receive the praise of people. I like to think that I've come to understand that what I can do is simply a gift that God gave me and that any praise for that thing belongs to him. But the temptation to receive praise for it, to enjoy praise for it, to bask in the praise of it, is never very far below the surface, even though I know that all the glory for it belongs to God. We see this issue popping up in all sorts of ways in our lives. Parents, you will see this predisposition in your children. Your child will be tempted to love popularity more than they love God. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. They'll also be tempted to pursue only those things in life that make them look good and make them feel good about themselves because of this predisposition. If your child has grown up in the church, it's not at all unlikely that they'll desire the attention that public baptism brings long before they understand what it means. Some of us here say yes to almost everything because we want to be thought of as helpful, as faithful, as reliable, as good. Some of us say no to things because we're afraid of disappointing others. Almost all of us are disappointed at least, if not angry, when we do something we think is praiseworthy and we don't get praise for it. 
and we maybe not, don't even get a thank for it. We could go on and on, but this, you can see, is one of the most common frailties we all share. This desire for the praise of people is a, a subtle thing. It's kind of like a drug. You do something, and you receive a little praise for it, unexpectedly. That feels good. But it fades quickly, and you want more. So slowly at first, you begin to manipulate things in such a way to put yourself in the best position to receive a little more praise. And you do, and you want more. So now you start to take steps to ensure that you get praised. And then you begin to fear that you won't receive praise and that maybe there's something wrong with you if you don't receive praise. Maybe you're not worthy. Maybe you're not good enough. And soon we find that we're being motivated by the desire for praise from people. The approval of others becomes what we really are devoted to. So the scribes are like us. They had become completely subsumed by this temptation. Jesus says this is all that drives them. How sad. All that matters to them is the, the praise of people and the rewards that come from their own accomplishments. This self-serving heart posture has produced in them a counterfeit devotion to God. Why? Because they've discovered that the way to maximize the amount of praise they receive is the appearance of devotion to God. It doesn't matter whether they actually devote are devoted to God. All they need to do is give the appearance of devotion to God, and they'll get lots of praise. And it doesn't seem as though the scribes are aware that this is what's actually motivating them. The truly frightening thing about all this is that these guys spent all day, every day, reading, studying, and teaching Scripture. And still, this happened to them. If this could happen to them, it can happen to anyone. Our desire for the praise of people leads to fake, self-serving devotion to God. Although it isn't the main point of this section, there are some other clear applications in these three verses. First, the responsibility that comes with teaching people what God's Word says is not to be taken lightly. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should be te become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's what, exactly what Jesus said to the crowd in verse 40 about the scribes. He said, they will receive the greater condemnation because they said they spoke for God. They said, this is what God's word says, and their lives did not back that up. Second, watch out for those who are in positions of teaching authority. Be careful who you listen to. Don't judge just their doctrine, but watch their lives as well. If you're a member of this church, you're responsible to hold me or anyone else who stands up here accountable for what we say and 
as importantly, the way we live. On behalf of all the elders, I ask, please do that for us. One of the reasons that God intended us to live out our faith together as a local church like this and to submit ourselves to the teachings of elders who are here in this church is so that we know the lives of the men who lead us, so that we can pray for them, hold them accountable, help them continue to follow Jesus. And third, let's help one another by being careful in the way we compliment each other. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to compliment people or to encourage the skills and gifts that we see in them. That's good, that's appropriate. But if we're all struggling with this craving for the desire of men, is it possible that it might be helpful to at least some of the time think about praising each other for what we see God doing in each other's lives more than we praise each other for the skills that we see in each other or the talents we see in each other? Jesus has shown us that even for seemingly godly people, our desire for the praise of people will ultimately produce fake, self-serving devotion to God. But, praise God, Jesus did not leave the disciples or us there. Immediately after denouncing the scribes, he sought a contrasting example for them of real devotion and for us. Let's look at verses 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contributed to the offering. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Can you, can you picture this scene? Jesus has been teaching at the temple. He's debating the Herodians, debating the Pharisees, debating the Sadducees, teaching the, uh, debating the scribes, teaching crowds of people. And he leaves the crowd, and he goes and he sits down on a bench in the area of the Temple Mount called the Court of the Women, where there were offering boxes, 13 of them with these trumpet-shaped receptacles. And he sat there and he watched people give. Imagine the sound of rich people dumping in large amounts of metal coins into these metal funnels. How obvious the size of anyone's gift must have been. Mark tells us that there were lots of rich people giving, big, noisy offerings. But Jesus said of their gifts that they gave out of their abundance, which means they just gave what was extra. They gave what they didn't need. Jesus sure doesn't seem very impressed with that kind of giving. It was flashy, loud maybe, and by the numbers, they gave a lot. But to God, giving is always, or is never about the amount. It's always about the heart. 
Giving is meant to be an act of worship, an act of devotion, an act of sacrifice. God doesn't need our money. But as we've seen consistently in the Gospel of Mark, being a disciple means surrendering our whole selves to him. And giving is meant to be an expression of that. Jesus waited, watching all this unimpressive giving as it was happening. And then, almost, almost unnoticed, one poor widow came all alone and gave. What did she give? Almost nothing of real monetary value. Two little thin slivers of copper worth less than a fraction of a penny. It wasn't, wasn't much, but it was all she had. At that moment, Jesus calls all the disciples to him and says, look at that. That's real devotion. That's what it means to be a disciple. The people at the temple that day, they didn't even see this widow. She was invisible to them. They didn't hear her puny little coins tinkling in the offering box. They didn't see that something praiseworthy had happened. But Jesus saw. God incarnate saw her heart and praised it as a model of, of real devotion. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus, that day, God in the flesh, saw the heart of the scribes and said, watch out for that. And he saw the heart of this widow and said, that's the goal. But what is it that enabled such devotion to God in this poor uneducated, unvalued woman. What was she doing that can help us avoid becoming like the scribes? All it says is that she gave out of her poverty everything she had, all she had to live on. Notice she had two coins. She could have given one and her offering would have still been a substantial sacrifice. But she gave everything everything, absolutely everything she had. She gave all of herself to God. She came to God like a child, utterly dependent on him, just like Jesus had been asking in, earlier in the Gospel of Mark. In her poverty, back in chapter 10, there's a story of a rich man coming to Jesus and saying, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus told that rich man, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. He asked that man to follow Jesus in his poverty, his spiritual poverty. This woman is doing just that, putting her trust in God in her poverty. The scribe's apparent devotion was nothing but self-serving. The widow's genuine devotion is self-sacrificing. Why would she, this woman, this widow, no one else cares about her, no one else is looking out for her. 
Why would she give up all that she had to live on? What was she thinking? She was thinking about, my faith is in God alone. Where does that kind of faith come from? For her or for you? It comes from knowing God and His promises. She knew Him and she knew His promises. In Psalm 68, 5, one of dozens of scriptures about God's care for widows, God describes Himself this way. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows. She knew that. She didn't put her faith in metal. She didn't put her faith in herself. She put her faith in the God who is the protector of widows. That's awesome. We know God because he reveals himself to us. Our faith in him comes because he reveals who he is to us so that we can put our faith in him. Friend, if you're here today and you think you don't matter, that no one cares about you, hear this. God cares more for you than you can fathom. He takes special delight in caring for underdogs and outcasts. Well, God's grace at work in this widow's life teaches us this. Faith in God leads to real, self-sacrificing devotion to him. Her solution is our solution. How is my faith going to be genuine? When I put my faith in him. That's the only way it's going to be genuine. Because faith leads to genuine devotion. Proverbs 29, 25 says it like this. The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Our desire for the praise of people leads to fake, self-serving devotion. But faith in God leads to real self-sacrificing devotion to him. The widow here points the way for the disciples and for us to real discipleship. The way down is the way up. The call of the gospel is a call to absolute surrender to God and total trust in him through Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here today, and you're thinking that your devotion to God is not what you'd like it to be, be encouraged. There's a solution. It's not in trying harder or by willpower. The answer is complete surrender. Cast yourself on Jesus again. Put your whole trust in him, and he will change your heart and change what you love. The more that Jesus becomes the object of our desire, the less concern will be with the praise of God. Like the sun eclipsing lesser lights. Trusting in him is my protection against my own sinful desires. Church on Mill, what if we were a people of God who sought only the praise of God and not the praise of people? Well, anything that God would see as praiseworthy in me or you, like the widow, would be his grace at work in us. And so he would be glorified. This morning you may be thinking, I'm not sure how real or fake my devotion to God is. I would say, ask God to reveal it to you. Psalm 139, David prayed, 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you're here today and you don't, wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian, you might say, I'm not devoted to God, and I'm not sure I want to be devoted to God. Fair enough. But I would ask you to consider two things. First, you are devoted to something. In other words, you do worship something. You may not put it in those words, and it may not be God, but there's something that's the object of your hope, something you've put all your trust in. I would ask you to think about what that is and to consider if that thing, that person, that philosophy, whatever, is truly worthy, worthy of your devotion. God has revealed himself to us in his word as the only one who's faithful, the only one who's good, the only one who is just, the only one who loves completely, and therefore the only one in the universe who's really worthy of your worship and your devotion. We would love to help you get to know him better and see that for yourself. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The second thing I would like you to consider is this. The widow's self-sacrificing devotion was more than just an example for the disciples to follow. Her act of devotion foreshadowed a much greater act of self-sacrificing devotion to God that was coming to, in just a couple of days. Jesus would give all he had his whole life for us, for you. He gave up his life. No one took it from him. He freely chose to surrender his very life and then take it up again so that sinners, dead in our sin, who have no hope of saving ourselves, could have life in him and be reconciled to God. Jesus' act of self-sacrifice sets the pattern for all who will follow after him. But the surrender we make in following Jesus is far outweighed by the glory we receive in him. If anyone will repent of going their own way in sin and put their trust in Jesus, he'll save them. He'll come to dwell in them. He'll take their sin and exchange it for his righteousness. He'll transfer them from the kingdom of this world to his eternal kingdom. Jesus' Jesus's self-sacrificing devotion to God makes that possible. If you'd like to talk to someone to find out more about what it means, what it really means to put all your trust in Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about that, and so would most of the people in this room. We'd love to help you know the Jesus we know. Friend, God is the only one worthy of your devotion. And that devotion begins in, by faith in Jesus Christ. So our desire for the praise of people leads to fake, self-serving devotion. But faith in Christ leads to real, self-sacrificing devotion to him. You were designed for total devotion to God. Through faith in Christ, your devotion to God will be transformed by His grace into what it's meant to be. Let's pray.
Father, we are so grateful as we think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Far beyond any other sacrifice that's ever been made, his sacrifice makes possible our devotion to you. By putting our faith in him, we can grow to love you. Father, most of us here would say our devotion to you is not what it should be, that there are days and moments when we still desire the praise of people. Father, we pray that you would help us to more and more seek to put all our desire in you, to love you, to pursue you as the first place in our life so that those lesser lights of the praise of people would begin to fade. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.